0: have we exceeded our team cognitive load for the system that we're working on? And if we have, uh, let's do something about it.
1: Good morning. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Jessica Kerr. The other day, I read the book, Team Topologies, about how to organize sets of teams for continual flow of value. Today, I'm thrilled to talk with the authors of Team Topologies, Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pais. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having us. It's great
0: to be here. Hi.
1: This book has a super DevOps background, right?
2: Yes. (laughs) It uh, actually started with the DevOps topologies that uh, a lot of people have referenced which uh, was a blog post by Matthew um, years ago, and then this, turned this into like
0: a back catalog. In, back in 2013, um, I actually wrote a blog post on my on my uh, personal blog. I wrote it in a rage because at the time I was like <laughs> I was so frustrated with with what was happening at the place I was working at at the time. There was there was p- people on the kind of the dev side of the organization, basically and, and a separate group on the kind of op side. And it was they're, have, they're finding it very difficult to tr- work out how to work together. And there seemed very little interest in trying to work out an effective way of working. And so I kind of, basically in a rage, I kind of wrote this blog post and and came up with a kind of these Venn diagrams with different kind of overlapping responsibilities or different ways of visualizing how the responsibility of teams. Um, Because at the time I was, what I had in my head was, come on, let's just find a way of working. Like any one of these ways could work really well, but but we're in a bad place where where we haven't got a good way of working at all. And so I kind of wanted to characterize some, some different ways of working in a, in the kind of IT space in the DevOps context. And then, with, with kind of uh, did a few talks and things, and then with Manuel's help, we kind of expanded it into, into something a bit more polished on on, a, on the website at DevOpsTopologies.com.
2: For me, so I joined the party of, <laughs> a little bit <clears> later <throat> in 2015 when I met Matthew. And for me, it was mostly about everyone talking about DevOps team. And I'm like, what the hell are you calling a DevOps team? and so having that resource was like okay here kind of let's go one step further and actually think about which other teams do you have and you know devops is not about creating a new team called devops uh so have a look at you know what makes sense for your organization and i think that the page the devops topology says there's no one one single right topology but there are many that are kind of um Damaging, depending on what we're trying to achieve. Um, so for me, that that was the, the key thing about the DevOps topologies. Just clarifying what what types of teams do you have, and you know what is a DevOps team actually?
0: And so so this website DevOps topologies um, it became quite well known. There's quite a lot of organizations around the world that have used it. Sometimes acknowledging the source and sometimes not. So sometimes we we would see these diagrams and they're quite clearly our diagrams and people have just listed them and not kind of acknowledged it, which, you know, I suppose that's kind of flattery uh, in a way. But anyway, the the whole lot is um, creative commons. uh, So it's free for people to use and send pull requests and all that kind of stuff, because it, it, it seems to really help lots of organizations to kind of think through what they're doing, how they're kind of operating their organization, if you like. So we had um, the patterns have been used. Those original patterns have been used at Netflix. So Philip Fisher Ogden, who's the director of engineering at Netflix, he tweeted out um, a, couple of, a couple of years ago. He tweeted out, um, "You know, thanks for your insightful articulations of DevOps topologies. They inspired many discussions and helped us to think about what model Netflix teams could be using." So that was kind of cool to see that that. Um, that you know, an organisation like Netflix has uh, found them useful to help them kind of think through how how they how they want to run their teams and so on. And there's quite lots of other organisations. Um, Condé Nast, the big international publisher, also used them as well. And Crystal Hershon, who's director of engineering, talks about the the balanced arguments, looking at the different perspectives between kind of ops teams and dev teams, and thinking, looking at this from looking at this problem, if you like, or this space from multiple perspectives at the same time. Um, rather than just trying to optimize for kind of a dev-centric view or an ops-centric view. So that's all great. And then we we um, we started using these patterns with our kind of consulting and training and things in, with different organizations around the world. We did some research for uh, a major technology company based in China. Um, and that kind of expanded our thinking. And we did more and more kind of, uh, like consulting work and training and, and investigation with we, different kind of contexts to try and validate the pattern or to, to try and invalidate the patterns. Basically, we were looking mm. for ways in which the patterns were kind of wrong somehow, li- like we do when we're when we're, we're trying to we're trying to prove something out. Um, and so we added a few more and we kind of tweaked the wording a little bit in in some of the cases. But after a while, we kind of realized that the original kind of DevOps topologies patterns were only really a starting point because they, they were very static. They only showed like a point in time and they showed a kind of big picture pattern that actually wasn't very realistic across o- an organization of any interesting size. Because an organization of any interesting size, you've multiple different kinds of interactions happening, multiple different kinds of teams and kind of setups and things. So we needed to kind of, we realized we needed to, that there was a lot more information that was actually um, important in, in, in when thinking about how, how organizations operate
2: Part of that is understanding how this the relationships between teams and interactions are also dynamic. So what we were seeing with some clients was that, okay, if if this is defined as a static thing, like the, imagine you have traditional kind of traditional DevOps teams, and how, if we say, well, you always need to collaborate for any uh, delivery, and you know you always expect it to be doing things together, that actually sometimes it's useful sometimes it's not useful because if there's a lot of discovery to do, we don't really know how we're going to de- deploy this thing or it's a new platform. Yes. You know, definitely collaborate and make sure you get feedback as soon as possible. But if it's something that's kind of stable, then why do you always have to depend on another team to just do your work? Just, just deploy or just monitor whatever it might be. Um, and so that's what we were seeing with clients like, okay, this, this is a good type of interaction for this particular problem or need. But later on, it, it might not be the case. So that's where the DevOps topologies were kind of too static. And then we started thinking about how is this kind of more dynamic in a way that allows the organization to and the teams to actually sort out by themselves how we need to evolve to achieve whatever we're trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, I love the emphasis in the book on not just what are the good patterns, but how do you know which pattern applies and how do you know when it doesn't anymore?
0: Yeah. And then this this is a really crucial aspect of it that, that we realized we needed to include, which is it's it's not just yeah, it's not just a set of patterns or templates. It's we wanted to provide a kind of organizational capability for detecting when things have, have changed and have gone wrong, and then allowing the organization to to move on and adapt itself. Because that's ultimately a, a much more important capability for an organization to be able to adapt in the face of different circumstances than just "oh, we've got the right pattern now." That that was that was a kind of a, a key light bulb moment or key a key a key realization for us was that a lot of these organizations that were having problems were they were these organizations were often looking for the perfect kind of team structure. But the, that didn't exist. <laughs> we, we, we need to set ourselves up to change and to detect or, when our team structure is wrong.
2: Or they're looking for, you know, now we're DevOps or now we're agile. And yeah. in fact, that was not really, yes, was bringing some benefits, but not the kind of... Uh, Life changing, if you like, for the organization if, type of.
1: If your transformation's yeah. ever done, your transformation has failed. Yep. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Like Mirko Herring say, says, there's no end state for your transformation. It's just becoming able to continuously evolve. Is the is is is, is the goal? Right. Right. Yeah. Like being alive.
0: We, we added a few extra things in the mix as well. Like oh, okay. um, we went back and and looked again at the stuff on Conway's Law. So Conway's Law, this mm-hmm. kind of mirroring between the the, the technical and the, and the social aspects of an organisation building systems. But actually, if you go back and read, I don't know whether you've read the original uh, oh, yeah. 1968 paper. I mean, that is actually, it's, it's packed full of really key insights. He He's had such good insights, did, did Mel Conway back in 1968. I mean, I definitely recommend anyone listening just to, to go ahead and like – this sounds weird, right? But go ahead and read that 1968 paper because, and read it properly. Actually, properly read it. Get a highlighter pen. Print it out. Get a highlighter pen or do the highlighter thing in, in, um, in like your PDF reader because there's so many useful things in there. The one thing that's, that, that jumped out at me when I read it was that organi- the design of our organization is a constraint on the solution search space. This means that certain kinds of solutions we will never find if our organization is in a particular shape, which is a major problem in terms of innovation, in terms of being able to kind of do new stuff. We're, we're basically limited, limited in terms of the kind of stuff we can even think about based on the structure of our organization. And that's that proper strategic level stuff. That's like, that's, that's, a, that's properly, the organization is potentially properly hampered from even finding certain kind of Technical solutions or some kind of s- building certain kind of systems just because of the the shape of the organization
1: and that's not the end but, of the world I mean your, your organization has to have some sort of structure unless that structure never changes
0: well unless certain st- structure never changes or unless that structure is is so far removed mm. from the kind of systems that it should be building then it's a problem because you 've got this big big um, mismatch between the the structure the the communication structure in the organization and the and the systems that it's trying to build then that organization will always be fighting against Conway's law always spending so much time and effort trying to fight against that that mirroring effect that it, it it'll be it'll be incredibly kind of wasteful and it and it certainly won't kind of discover useful solutions so that felt like a really um
2: and it's also related i think really to if you if you're, if you're if you're building systems or services where you have many parts, whether that is because of the architecture that's split into many parts or because of the life cycle that requires, you know, many teams to, to do different things, then each of those teams has kind of a a smaller space to to think about the possibilities. And so you... There's a tendency to just, you know, basically repeat what you've done so far. So then we get into the idea of, you know, if if teams are the means of delivering value, and you want those teams to be uh, autonomous and own their their services, then they will be. They should have more space to find new solutions and not be so tied to. Oh, we only do this thing, or we only do this bit, or we only care about this. This bit. So I think that's also yeah one of the reasons why if you have structures that are too inflexible, then you won't be able to find more innovative solutions or more adequate solutions.
0: Yeah, and it's, and actually since um, since we wrote the book, there's been some interesting uh, academic research that's come out around um, flow in biological systems. Um, so. Obviously, the subtitle of the book is is organizing uh, business and technology teams for fast flow, and it turns out that, that certainly, certainly, some researchers in the kind of biological space of, are starting to look at flow as one of the most important aspects of, of living systems. And so, actually, thinking about organizing an organization to optimize for flow makes it more like a living system. It, it starts to starts to bring in some of the the the, the kind of properties of actual living systems, um, and so the importance of opt- of designing for flow is even bigger than we kind of than we sort of thought about as we were writing a book. It's kind of interesting to see some some, some of the really fresh thinking coming out of um, uh, out of uh, academia and, and researchers and things in in this space. So this kind of optimization for flow and its counterpart is kind of feedback because if we've got things flowing, we're actually able to detect things more more easily. Just ends up being a really seems to be a really powerful, important kind of uh, driver for uh, effective organisations that are able to then respond quickly. It because the organisation becomes more like an organism, more like a living thing because we've got because we've we've optimised for flow effect
1: in an organisation. What is flowing
0: primarily? We've got a flow of. Changes to services to meet some kind of needs. So, this, so
1: changes to software.
0: Well, that's our focus in the book because that's mm-hmm. our experience. But actually, um, so I spent some time uh, doing some work for UK government um, uh, in 2018, and there. In in situations like that, and in 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 other kind of situations as well, software is only actually a very small part of the end to end service. Particularly if it's kind of citizen facing, or other kind of services where there's a, where there's a physical component, and software is actually only only the, the small bit in the middle. So there is a part in the book where we actually talk about kind of long kind of uh, um, bigger services, if you like, where software is only a, a component. We talk about um, a service experience team. Who's responsible for kind of designing the, the end-to-end service, working with a software team in the middle to do the softwarey bit, but actually thinking about the end-to-end experience? But yeah, principally we've got a kind of we're trying to meet a need of either a user or of another uh, a, another system, and a chunk of that is going to be software. And so we've got we've got changes to that service kind of flowing down towards the towards the live version of that system or the live version of that service. Um, that, that's guess the principal just, thing we're talking
2: yeah. about. To clarify, I think we're talking about um, what is flowing is whatever changes we need to do to meet those business needs, uh, and not we're not talking about you know flowing you know features requests that have been approved down to to the teams. It's actually a more kind of experiment driven approach where you know we have this this goal or this this need we need to meet and and then allowing the teams to find what's the right solution and delivering that. It's
1: a we're we're looking for a flow of changes to outcomes, not Mm -hmm. like back in the old days, um we looked at the flow of parts through a factory or we looked at you might look at the flow of uh requests for driver's licenses or whatever if you're a government Government office, but you're looking at the flow of the actual product. And now, in modern systems, which include software, the flow isn't the production. That's just happening because, especially with software, because uh, computers just do it over and over really fast. The flow is of changes to the flow of the product.
2: Yeah. So, so actually, it's a just very a very s- different level of work. Just as a side note on that, but I think it's interesting because we it, we know there are, are also some movements within manufacturing to kind of try to apply ideas from agile. So what they're trying to do is understanding actually to be innovative in in the space where you have physical devices. We can't, we shouldn't be any longer also doing everything up for all the design up front and assume that this is all going to be what the users need and actually what uh, some of these ideas are around actually, you know, prototyping really fast and, and being having capability to build things yourself uh, to some extent and validate quickly with your actual users until you get kind of validation that, okay, this looks like this is the right design for our, our device or whatever it might be, and then Okay, then we can scale and, and produce um, at large.
0: And there's also, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but there's a great, I think it was just a tweet, maybe a talk from John Willis. Uh, when he, he, he did a factory tour with Toyota recently and Toyota have a programmable factory. So he John Willis talks about factory as code where Toyota, obviously originators of kind of lean thinking and all this kind of stuff, now have taken ideas from software and now can reconfigure their car manufacturing plant in code. So we've got this interplay of ideas, which is kind of amazing to, to see these kind of ideas from software going back into physical manufacturing and enabling all sorts of different stuff. Um, so yes, in that particular case, then what's flowing down is... It's multi-level. We've got cars flowing along the production line, but we've also got changes to our assembly line itself flowing down and needing to be tested as code. That's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah. And then Manuel pointed out that one of the things we get from those fast changes is learning. So there's a flow of learning through the system, through our system
2: even more kind of another impressive example. So Mick Kirsten has talked about how he, he has been to like BMW factories. And so there are different. It's not all the same factory lines making different models. It's some of them are like, okay, this is our, you know, regular production line and we just correct minor, minor problems. And other parts are actually, um, designed to learn actually. What is the best way to build this model? So not for uh, the quantity and the throughput, but actually make sure we learn as quickly as possible how the production can be more effective. and then they'll go and re reorganize the line to you know to be to be as efficient as as they as they can. but it doesn't start from there. It starts from we need a space where we deliberately make room to learn and we're not trying to optimize everything.
0: I think this dynamic between uh, this, this, this understanding that there's a need to have different configurations for learning and discovery versus mm. high volume production, if you like, and, and friction free production is a really kind of key concept that, uh, and it's and something that we effectively talk about in the book um, because in the past, for various reasons. Um, a lot of the kind of w- books that talk about different kind of teams and different ways of doing software delivery and different ways of scaling agile and stuff like this, a lot of them have a very kind of factory mentality. We are going to, this is a software factory, and we're going to push out lots of code. And actually, and, and a lot of them have a kind of one size fits all sort of approach to it, which, which doesn't feel right. It seems quite important to understand different kinds of dynamics in the organization at different times. Sometimes we need to work together to uh, bring two different teams together with different expertise and, and discover something because that's what's needed at that point. But but at other times we actually just want to have a kind of friction-free uh, ability to kind of uh, work on the same kind of stuff with the same kind of dependencies and the same kind of um, services quite quickly for, for a long period of time. Other times we might need some help or advice from some experts or whatever. And so the nature of these interactions is should feel different. The the, the, the nature of, of what we're doing is different. So the, so the way in which we kind of interact with other groups should be different. And, and mm-hmm. how, how that kind of work looks at that point should be different because its purpose is different.
1: And, and you give names to these things in, in the book. What, what are the three patterns you just talked about?
0: Yeah, so we, we we came up with um, three different kind of team interaction modes. One is uh, collaboration, but we're quite specific about what collaboration means. It means working together with one other team for a defined period of time to achieve an outcome.
1: And I love that you point out that collaboration is not the objective. Collaboration exactly. needs to be limited.
0: Yes, because too, too much collaboration, if, if two teams need to work together for a long period of time to achieve the same thing. and Really our, in our, two teams well are there really two teams that's a good question and mm-hmm. do they have the right capabilities is something missing is there is there could they be using an external service to help them do that instead um, are they focused on the right thing uh, you know there's all sorts of problems with that with with collaboration that that, that goes on and on and on um, it's not necessarily a good thing to, to have continual collaboration it's, it's it's a signal that something's missing or in the wrong place or or um, Within or, a team, not available. continual
1: collaboration is expected,
0: right? So, so, so yeah. So, when, when we talk about uh, collaboration, we're talking about um, – we, we take a team as a, as a single kind of unit, if you like, a single thing, entity that, that, that's used for delivery of, of, of something. So, when we talk about collaboration, we're always talking about, like, one team and uh, working with another team.
1: The, the book is very clear about teams are the units of yeah. delivering value, not resources. <laughs> as you might call humans,
2: <laughs> also known as humans. Um, yeah, we so, we we focus a lot on on the team, and so we were saying inside the team, you expect very strong collaboration and trust. And you know, when you look at high performing teams, and if you look at State of DevOps report and Accelerate book, it's all um, it's all you know that that's a key aspect is that the team is, is gelled. And when you see organizations that are, you know, project-based and, and also a lot of organizations that rely a lot on um, outsourcing or contracting and, and, you know, people that uh, come and go and the teams are essentially never stable. There's always, you know, we're creating a team for a project. Um, so there's a lot of value that is lost, not only in kind of, the knowledge around the systems and, and services that are being developed, but also the the gains of having an actual team that can go faster and people know each other. They know what you know what are the strong points and the weak points, what you know people um, are, give importance to and, and so that all those things and all those kind of human aspects are important to to get a, a team that it can really perform well. And so when you if you understand that, and then you should that reflect that in the the way the organization is structured, the way that uh, people are incentivized, then, you know, that focus on the team can have a, a very important implications to how we should go about um, trying to promote, you know, uh, higher performance and and better delivery or faster delivery.
1: So, if teams aren't collaborating all the time, what are they
0: doing? If we've if if two teams have have been working have been collaborating together, let's say they've worked together in that way, really close collaboration, which which might mean you know literally sitting at each other's desks or st- attending each other's stand ups, or, or at least they're on video calls, you know, day in day out for maybe this happened for three weeks, and they've now discovered. a a new way of doing something who knows what it is it it doesn't really matter but let's say it's um, something about the way that the infrastructure needs to work to enable quicker deployments if we've now got to a point where we've discovered how that should work if if we if we realize that there's a nice interface or we can we can see that there's probably a nice interface here a nice api that one team could call and the other team could provide then if we want that nice api then Conway's law suggests that we should actually not need to talk to each other very much because the, because if we, if we don't need very much uh, machine-to-machine communication, if you like, then there should be less need for team-to-team communication. We should explicitly say, okay, we're at the point now where we think we've worked out what this API should look like. Let's work together less closely. Let's actually kind of have a different relationship, different interaction between these two teams now um, so that, that will, we can start to lean on Conway's law to help us work out, to help us make sure that the API is actually nice and clean. Otherwise, the danger if we continue to collaborate is that the API becomes less clean. Um, so you're listening to the technology
1: and using that to give yourself advice on how the social Half of the system should work. The
0: team, yeah, and and and, and, and and both ways round. Uh, the, the same as well. So listening to the the social interactions and saying, does that match with what the technical interaction should be like? And and, and it, it's it's a it's a kind of a circular thing, really, which is what Conway's yeah. law kind of tells us.
2: Because it's also like you don't know, you're not always going to get it right when is the right time to. Expose something as a as a service and say, well, now our interaction is more decoupled because maybe you got it wrong, maybe it's it was too early, and you need to um and you actually need need to go back and and collaborate a bit more again. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about kind of services provided by some some kind of platform, then you also need to be aware of. You know, different teams might come from different backgrounds. So, what works for one team, and we could say, "Well, this is enough for one team," might not be adequate for the second team or the third team because maybe they're coming from a different uh, starting point or they don't have as much experience with infrastructure automation or deployments, whatever it might be. Um, and so, it's kind of again, kind of continuous evolution and sensing. When the expected interactions are causing problems. So actually, we thought this was stable enough and clear enough to be X as a service, but the teams are always coming back to us asking for help. How do I use this? And so that's a sign that actually we need to work out a better interface, we need to perhaps improve our documentation. and and so on so that th- those teams can be again more autonomous and use the services uh, rather than depend on us to to help them
1: so in this example the team started out in collaboration mode they found a nice breaking point with a good api and so they moved into an as a service interaction
0: yeah that's right and exactly. then
1: when that got fuzzy they moved back into
0: collaboration exactly so we, we've got this kind of uh, this this dynamic where we're we're you know if 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 we're using so collaboration is great for discovering new stuff new patterns new ways of doing things but it has a higher cognitive overhead and and it's probably slower overall to deliver things if we found a nice interface or nice api that we can kind of consume or provide as a service then potentially if that's a good api we're actually able to kind of use that and deliver stuff really quickly using that but there's always a possibility that the API needs evolving and we've got it in the wrong place and so on. So we might need to actually kind of have a different sort of relationship with that team for that for that particular kind of API, if you like. So we're always kind of thinking, well, what's the right kind of relationship to have at this point? Bearing in mind Conway's law, because that Conway's law like too much... Collaboration is going to kind of tend to blur the boundary of, of that, that kind of component. And we're also thinking about what we're trying to achieve. So being much more conscious about the kind of interactions that teams are having with other teams inside the organization to make the purpose much clearer. Um, and to help us detect when we've got boundaries wrong or we've got responsibilities wrong or there are missing capabilities inside teams or inside the organization as a whole. And we've got, we've got this third uh, interaction mode called um, facilitation this is where we've got one team kind of helping um, another team to increase their knowledge or awareness or capability or h- helping helping to understand, let's say, why another team is finding something difficult. So typically, we, we might have a team of experts. Uh, so one, one specific example I had with a, a client recently was they're moving from Oracle database to Postgres database. So they had a team of experts there who were acting in a kind of facilitating way with some of the kind of product teams in the book we call them stream aligned teams So this group of, of, of experts was, was acting in this kind of facilitating way with, with, um, with the stream aligned team to help them move, move in this case move database um, so the people who are doing that facilitating interaction are not they're not doing the work. They're not doing the work to move from Oracle to Postgres in this case. They are helping another team to do it. And They're by like
1: providing the knowledge that's needed and at the same time transferring that knowledge to to the team?
0: Well, so it's not just about knowledge transfer. This is a, this is a key thing that it's also about. The, the people in that facilitating interaction listening for signals looking for things that might be missing so if they've worked with three different teams that all have the same problem is there perhaps there is something missing in uh in the tool set perhaps there's something fundamentally missing in terms of the set of skills that we've got in the organization perhaps uh, you know something else is 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 kind of not working and actually we can we can, If we're listening for that, we can detect a problem there early and do something about it rather than just going ahead and kind of doing the work on behalf of 17 different teams. At some point, we're going to say something's missing here or something's wrong. Let's step back and, and think perhaps this could be better provided uh, as an API by a platform, for example. And so it allows the organization to kind of self-steer and correct behavior, correct its kind of organizational behavior much sooner than if we're just kind of going ahead and building something on behalf of everyone else.
1: Okay, so we've got the three interaction modes, the collaboration, the as-a-service, and the facilitation. And then you have how many different kinds of teams that are involved in these?
2: So there are four fundamental topologies. We talk about team aligned teams, uh, which... You know, some people call them product teams or cross-functional teams. So essentially, we're talking about cross-functional team that owns the end-to-end uh, delivery and, and runtime of a, a service. And this so, is where the flow of runtime. changes
1: to services happens, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of the heartbeat, if you like, of delivering those those changes to that the business or, or whoever needs. Those are kind of, core, and then we have three other fundamental topologies that are in place to help the stream teams uh, reduce their cognitive load. So we talk about uh, platform teams that provide services, like we were talking just now, um, whatever kind of services that are helpful for the teams to use in in this kind of autonomous way uh, as much as possible, whether that be deployments, infrastructure provisioning, um, monitoring, or kind of more business-focused services around data, whatever it might be. Is this
1: what people call a DevOps team?
2: In some organizations, perhaps. (laughs) And then we have uh, enabling teams, which are typically the ones doing the facilitation that Matthew was talking about. They might be, in some cases, they're kind of more short-lived if it's a very specific Area that they're helping the stream teams with, like, like that example of migration uh, between, um, database technologies. And that in other case might be more long lived around some capabilities, like let's say continuous delivery, something like that. And then we have complicated subsystem teams, which we strongly discourage, but we had to acknowledge that sometimes for very specific. Types of algorithms or even some very niche technology that you, you there are very few specialists or is something that is too too complicated that requires basically a full time team to understand and own it and be able to make changes then you want a team around that uh, which might actually just be providing a subsystem to one other to another stream team, but it still makes sense from a cognitive load perspective that you know. We cannot ask one team to own this complicated subsystem and all the other bits of the kind of more end user focused uh, part of the service.
1: You've mentioned cognitive load a couple times, and that's one of my favorite things in this book is how you talk about the limitation of a team is cognitive load. It's not resources. It's not pizza.
2: Uh, although pizza is a very appealing <laughs> way to talk about it. Okay, so we start from the point of view that, um, you know, the idea of two pizza teams actually, well, depends on the size of pizza. But it makes sense uh, when you look at uh, things like actual research around the human brain size um, and the c- capacity of humans to have close relationships with with other people. And so there's, uh, Robin Dunbar is an anthropologist. So he did a lot of research and he came up with Dunbar's numbers or, or people called it Dunbar's numbers And so there's a limit between five and and 15, which is how many deep trust relationships we can have, uh, at any moment in, in our life. So that is, seems to fit in that kind of the the usual number of uh, team members. For agile teams and uh, delivery teams, you know, around seven plus minus two. But then cognitive load comes in into, you know, if we have that limitation or on the size of the team, how much are they able to take on without degrading their capability of responding to change and responding to, to problems as well and fixing problems? And, and that's, how much
1: we're able, they're yeah. able to take on? Does that yep. mean feature requests?
0: <laughs> well, so if 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 that team has got to be is going to properly own the, the the change in in the software systems that that they're building, if they're going to actually be able to understand it and to be able to diagnose it properly and to be able to make sensible decisions about trade offs in terms of security versus speed or other kind of trade offs in terms of operability or um, uh, the complexity of how the deployments work, all sorts of things like this. That if that team is going to truly own that service. and and keep it viable, then they have to understand it. Not everyone on the team might not understand every single aspect, but the team as a whole, as a unit, needs to understand that service well enough for for the team to be able to own it. And so effectively what we're saying is that – so one of the things that the the, the kind of Amazon uh, AWS two-pizza team enforced back in 2002 or whenever it was when Jeff Bezos came up with that – Um, One of the things it effectively enforced, even though they don't talk about it, is a limit on the size of those uh, systems that those different teams build. And it's in the interest of that team. If that team is going to own that system, then they will make sure that the system never gets too complicated for them to understand. So therefore, by implication, there's a limit on the cognitive load that the team that team needs to work with to to actually properly own that system. They'll they'll always keep it kind of understandable, if you like. So there's
1: another underlying assumption here. We've got that the team is is the unit that delivers value. And we've got the part that the team owns a piece of software. That there's not like one blob of software and 10 teams making various changes to it. There are there's ownership there
0: there's ownership it- there and, a, and that's it's a really important dynamic because without that ownership the the complexity will um will inevitably bloat and rapidly become uh, too difficult for for almost anyone to understand at all so you've got an interesting kind of enabling constraint which is uh, an upper limit on the com- on the kind of complexity of a chunk of the system that um, is sort of team sized, a team size limit on the kind of complexity, oh, which, um, which is a really, it's a really weird starting point for thinking about how the size of different bits of software system. But that's the kind of implication because we've because we've got a socio-technical system here. Actually, we can use that that upper limit uh, to to kind of. To, to create a kind of sensible upper bound on the complexity of, oh, of like a small, small chunks. Yeah, it's a useful constraint on the on the on the, the kind of the, the the complexity of chunks of the system.
1: Okay, now um, you just you said something. You said that if the team has ownership and the team has limited cognitive load, then the team will will make sure the system never gets more complicated than they can. I've not seen that in practice. I mean, I've totally been on teams, and we created software systems that were way more complex than we could understand anymore.
0: So, to us, I think this this is the this is the thing which we can which we can elevate now to be something that should be an explicit goal, which is let's always ask ourselves: Have we exceeded our team cognitive load for the system they're working on? And if we have, uh, let's do something about it. Let's let's make sure you know. Let's detect it. Let let's 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 reflect on that. Um, that's actually something we're working on at the moment. Is um, is ways to assess team cognitive load in in, in practice um, because that's what one of the questions that's, that's come out of the training and kind of consulting we've been doing been doing and recently.
2: Actually, we have a case study in the book where, um, actually, a couple of case studies where effectively the team themselves realized uh, the system or uh, the responsibilities have grown way over the, what we are able to to do, with the sense of actually having some mastery and some autonomy, because sometimes you also can create kind of <laughs> monsters where it's, you know, it's it's too big. And then you actually end up being um, at the mercy almost of, of this of the software where you're just running around trying to fix something here, fix something there, make a small change. And so, but we have case studies where uh, the teams themselves or some people on the team realized this is what was happening and uh, they decided to split the team and do a bit of rearchitecting of that you know be, uh, piece of software in order to be able for the smaller teams to go faster on on different parts of the of the software while understanding that it's not comp- they're not completely independent because this was one single system or service before uh, or, uh that we've split and so there will always be some dependencies and some work that requires collaboration between the two smaller teams. But let's say 80% of the time, something like that, we can actually work more independently than with a big team trying to do all this different stuff, because then that really can take a toll on on the individual, individuals um, feeling of autonomy and, and of kind of a shared purpose.
1: So in that case, are you describing like two teams splitting into, or one team splitting into two teams that are collaborating with the intention of moving toward um, a a side-by-side kind of um, as-a-service operation?
0: So it could be as-a-service, or it could actually be side-by-side paired. So um, there does seem to be uh, one of these kind of dumb bars, numbers, limits around about 15 people. So there are very few sports teams that are more than that have more than 15 people in it. If you think about it, I've not found one yet. I mean, there may be a a sport that has that, but very few. And again, there's a kind of anthropological reason for that, which is that there seems to be a limited round about 15 people in terms of the number of people we can have a kind of secondary level of trust with. And so actually Hmm. quite a few organizations have talked about situations where they've actually been able to run with a pair of teams working on slightly different but related things and still maintaining quite a high degree of trust. But actually that model doesn't seem to scale well to three teams, for example, because there's, mm. too, there's now too many people. Um, uh, that's kind of, as it happens, that's like another kind of important kind of lesson from, uh, from the book. Um, and th- there's lots of, uh, lots of references in the book to, to the original material, but what works at a certain scale doesn't work at a, at a slightly larger scale. There's, there's these kind of trust boundaries, which actually make the dynamics a little bit different. And that's kind of an important thing that organizations are going to need to get to grips with, which just because it works at this particular scale down here doesn't mean that you can assume it, you can just make the same model work at kind of eight teams or 25 teams. There's, there's, there's some different dynamics as, as the number of people reach different uh, different numbers.
1: Yes. I loved the bit where you point out that as a company grows from five people, and then crosses the boundary of 15, and then crosses 50, and then crosses 150. You have to re-architect the social organization of that
0: mm. to
1: reflect the the new needs. Um, and that implies that you have to re-architect the software.
0: You're absolutely right. And it implies a need for – the nice thing is with the kind of Dunbar's numbers heuristics, we can sort of anticipate When we're going to need to re-architect because we can look at our growth trajectory as a company in terms of the number of people we have and in terms of where those boundaries currently are and say, well, actually, based on this growth trajectory, we're going to expect to need to re-architect it to look a little bit like this with these kind of number of segments and these kind of number of different services or different kind of um, subdomains or whatever in 18 months time. So yeah. actually, with these heuristics, we're actually able to predict some architectural changes that are going to be needed, uh, or at least start to prepare the ground for that, which feels much more useful than this very reactive re-architecting that often happens in, in lots of organizations.
1: Right. You can plan for it. Yeah. And, and you've managed to provide some sort of evidence Answer to the eternal question of how big should a microservice be? <laughs> <laughs> the Answer being, what is the cognitive load capacity of one team of yeah. seven plus or minus two? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. Because because if, if if that team wants to wants to create a hundred microservices and they're happy with it and they've got a nice fancy microservice fabric that does all this stuff for them and allows mm-hmm. them great observability, if they want to do that, that's great. If, that, if they're happy and they're able to deal with it, cool. If they cr- prefer to create one or two services to deal with that, but they can still deploy them nice and quickly and they can still deal with how the software is architected, again, that's fine. Because it's about kind of uh, team-level ownership and, 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 and limiting the the kind of complexity and size of bits of software so it's no bigger than than that team can handle.
2: I like to use a, a beer analogy for that. If, he, if I want to drink a liter of beer, I don't care if it comes in a bottle of one liter or three small bottles uh, of 33 centiliters. I still but want to drink want a little a of beer.
0: <laughs> you don't want a gallon. I don't want a gallon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then what I want to worry about is if I don't want to get sick or intoxicated, then I probably shouldn't drink in, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes a little beer. I need mm-hmm. to drink over three hours or four hours. So thinking about my, you know, capacity to, to deal with that, um, What's what's uh, that intake of of how much I can uh, intake without degrading in my my system or the, or the team's uh, system?
1: I you know I I could ask a lot more questions and I'm sure our listeners have a lot more questions, which is great because they should all go out and buy the book. But in the interest of time, I want to wrap up this episode. Is there anything in particular um, that each of y'all want to make sure to get in?
2: Well, I think. Um, something that has been well, the book has gotten uh, really nice feedback and seems to uh, strike a chord with a lot of people and organizations. And like like you were talking about cognitive load as kind of just having terminology that people can use to talk about certain problems and uh, talk about you know why it's is is not microservices versus monoliths, but actually the teams. Capacity to to deal with with the software that they're responsible for Um, and other things, you know, the, the topologies and interaction modes. So people have some organizations have have really taken that just as a starting point to discuss, you know, how are we organized? Having a kind of lens on our organizational capabilities rather than it being something more. Too reactive for saying, "Well, we need to move to Kubernetes," and now we need to hire ten people. Or you know, this this is not really kind of helping. Have this broader view of what what types of teams do we have? You know, how are they interacting? What do we need to 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 move towards? And and so I think that has been very. Insightful to to get that feedback that the the book and the the terms and and the way things are described has helped a lot of people just. Talk about problems and talk about uh, organizational capabilities
0: we 've been kind of blown away really by the response to the book it 's been really great um, so we 're we're super happy to be part of the IT revolution books family along with you know Accelerate and Phoenix Project and uh, Project Product and these kind of books because it's this Gene Kims and his colleagues do a really good job in bringing together the kind of really complementary viewpoints. I think it's fair to say we're still learning. We're still learning. We're, we're you know, we're we're consulting and training with lots of different organisations, uh, multiple governments in different parts of the world, um, many different kind of banks, insurance companies, uh, product companies, uh, software, gaming companies. Um, I mean, at this point, it's kind of it starts to become easier to say which companies are not using it compared to which which companies are using it. But yeah, we're still learning. We're we we're, we're, we're we're kind of developing some new materials at the moment we we're, we've got some collaborations with some interest, really interesting companies, uh, to try and kind of expand on some of the ideas we, um, just, uh, yesterday, today, we've released a couple of, um, repositories on GitHub for, um, for helping to kind of flesh out some of the ideas in the, in the book and make them more useful for people. So, um, you know, this is a this is a, a kind of work in progress, if you like. So we've obviously published the book, which collected the ideas and, and made some terminology um, kind of more useful and so on. But we're, we're we're still working through some of the the ideas and implications and. Um, it's it's great to see people using the ideas and, and kind of running with them and, and developing new ways of uh, of kind of bringing together, for example, wardly maps and um, some more strategic stuff uh, together with some of the team Topology's ideas and seeing the seeing a kind of cross pollination of different ideas come out. So that, that's been really great. So we're 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 kind of super excited to kind of be developing the ideas further at the moment.
1: So as people want to follow along with you as you continue to develop the ideas, uh, where can they find that?
0: So just head to teamtopologies.com. And we've got a newsletter there, and we've got a Twitter account, which is very active, and we're on LinkedIn as well.
1: People can also head over to arresteddevops.com slash team-topologies for this episode's show notes. We'll have links to all the references and a summary of the episode. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store if you want to help other people find the podcast, spread the flow of learning. Thank you so much, Manuel and Matthew, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you.
1: I'm Jessica Kerr, also known as Jessitron.
2: And this has been Arrested DevOps. Remember, there's always DevOps
0: in the banana stand.